DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining me. It's a privilege to be with you as always, Chris. St. Cyril of Alexandria, known to many as the Doctor of the Incarnation. How fascinating. Well, we've uh, been covering so many of the different doctors over the the weeks uh, who have dealt with uh, the great heresies of their eras. And in Cyril, uh, we have no exception. Uh, Here is someone who was a a real leading figure in combating one of the great Christological heresies, one of the great Christological controversies in the church. And that, of course, is Nestorianism. We're going to talk about that. But uh, you're absolutely right that it is for that reason that he has the title of the Doctor of the Incarnation. Because if, if we have one takeaway word for Cyril of Alexandria as a, a doctor of the church, as a father of the church, it is Theotokos. It is God-bearer. And we always think of him then as so intimately connected with the church's understanding of the authentic place of Mary in the life of the church as well. When was he made a doctor of the church? Well, Cyril was named a doctor of the church uh, by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in 1883 with uh, several other doctors uh, in particular, uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem and St. John Damascene. So he's uh, part of the ongoing understanding of the church and appreciation by the church of the Eastern Church and the Eastern Fathers and the doctors who hailed from that part of the world uh, at a time uh, when, as I was saying before, uh, there were the great Christological controversies. To give a little bit of context, Cyril of Alexandria lived in the early 5th century, so he sort of moved out of the era of the church, having able to emerge out of the catacombs of the end of the persecution, and then we had the great controversies throughout the the 4th century of Arianism in particular. But the church's uh, struggle against those who had a misunderstanding of, of Christ uh, continued. And that's where Cyril, I think, uh, plays such a role. It's fascinating just to visit that once more that year, 1883. That would be only a couple decades after the great dogma of Mary's Immaculate Conception. Yes, exactly. The, the church really deepening her understanding of, of Mary, but also uh, appointing these doctors of the church, in particular Cyril, uh, it's a recognition on the part of uh, Pope Leo XIII of the important role for clarity of our understanding in the teachings and celebrating those who had such a significant role in helping the church to understand fully and, and properly Christ, uh, but also the place of his mother 
in, in our capacity to see Christ. Talk to us about St. Cyril and his experience in Alexandria. Yeah, well, to understand so much of uh, what was admittedly a controversial life, uh, Cyril is one of those doctors of the church who very often been attacked for his personality. When we think of irascible people, uh, especially doctors and fathers of the church, we, of course, immediately come to bring to mind uh, St. Jerome, uh, who mm-hmm. it seemed at times managed to have uh, disagreements with almost everyone he knew. Cyril uh, was somebody possessed, especially in his early life, uh, after becoming the archbishop in Alexandria, of a really fiery personality, and was engaged in some of the most heated controversies of his time. Why was that? Well, part of it was his personality. The other was a reflection of where he was serving as as bishop, and that was of the enormously important and richly cosmopolitan city of Alexandria. Now, by way of little background, the, the, the great city of Alexandria in northern Egypt, positioned as it was right on the Mediterranean, but but perfectly situated as a gathering place for trade, commerce, uh, and really the vibrant life of all the different cultures of the ancient world. It was positioned as it was uh, to receive through the city gates the, the great merchant caravans uh, that were coming from Africa, that were coming from the east. The Silk Road uh, ran through part of Alexandria at times. It was also one of the greatest of the seaports. It was the exit point for the grain that fed much of the Roman Empire. The grain was was harvested in Africa, came to Alexandria, and then was shipped off northward. So we begin to appreciate its economic importance. Politically, it was uh, also of great importance because of the significance of the grain, uh, but also because that uh, was really seen as a fortress representing imperial interests right at that hinge point uh, into the Middle East, into Africa, to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean beyond. Alexandria was also, as I said, powerfully cosmopolitan. You had in it uh, the great traditions of learning from the time of its founding in the 4th century BC by Alexander the Great. It became one of the great Hellenic centers in the whole of the world. You had there at one point the famed Library of Alexandria that uh, brought together much of the learning of the ancient world that was destroyed largely by fire uh, during the time of uh, Julius Caesar in the the 30s of of B.C. or so, beyond that, really before, during the the, the siege of Alexandria in 48 B.C. But then the, the library itself was subsequently withered away Christians have been blamed for supposedly destroying the library. As I was saying, it had been burned long before that. In fact, much of the the final damage done to the library was was done centuries later. But the point being that you had in Alexandria a compilation of different cultures. You had the Christians. You had a large Jewish population that had settled there because of the diaspora. Uh, They had been expelled from the Holy Land after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, and then again 
following the terrible bloodshed in the Holy Land uh, from what was called the, uh, the Revolt of the Zealots of Simon Bar Kokhba in, in the 130s. So a, a lot of Jews settled into Alexandria. And then you had still a lingering but still powerful pagan establishment there too. One of the great figures for that group was uh, Hypatia, who was a philosopher, astronomer, and mathematician, uh, whose murder by a group of fanatical Christians has actually been for centuries laid at the feet unfairly of Cyril. So the city was cosmopolitan, but it was also a hotbed of intrigue, cultural, political, even economic. And this is the, the, the setting, this was the, the milieu that Cyril oversee as bishop of a community that was growing rapidly, but itself was facing conflict and division. What about his formation? What do we know? Yeah, we unfortunately really don't have that much information about Cyril's early life. We know that he was born probably around 376 in a little town uh, in Egypt called Theodosios, uh, what is sort of probably the modern town of El Mahala El Kubra. Uh, he grew up under the great influence of his maternal uncle, Theophilus, uh, who himself uh, rose to the, the great office of the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, he was received the best education imaginable, and we know uh, that uh, he studied many of the, the great writers of his era. Uh, we know that uh, Athanasius, uh, who was the head of Alexandria, of course, and the, the great controversy of the Arians, and who faced exile on multiple occasions, uh, was one of those sources of uh, real influence in the life and, and the, the intellectual uh, formation of Cyril. Uh, we know that he also studied uh, all of the best things that you could, grammar and rhetoric, uh, and then, of course, theology. He really did, however, live under the influence of his, his uh, uncle. And that, I think, was the, the primary thing. The advantage to that, of course, was that uh, he grew up already familiar with the things that you need to know to become a very good bishop, a very good patriarch. And in that sense, then, uh, he was able to apply what he had learned. But that took a lot of tempering. And what I mean by that is that uh, he had to learn how to soften, how to moderate uh, what it was to be a bishop. And you know, we, we talk about uh, saints that uh, they learn, they grow in the faith, they mature in the faith, um, but they also mature in the religious life, in the spiritual life. And I think that's very much the case with Cyril, especially in uh, the, the hard lessons that he learned uh, when he succeeded his uncle in 412 as the bishop of Alexandria and embarked on a time as bishop of, of some three decades. I've seen it written that he was considered by his enemies the pharaoh of Egypt. <laughs> and and they did not mean that in a very particularly friendly way. Probably not. Part of it is because um, at the time of his arrival, as I was saying, there was great upheaval, great turmoil in Alexandria. And the result was that uh, he had to begin settling some affairs that had been left unattended, but that also were, were flowing from a lot of violent conflict. 
uh, in this city. You had, for example, uh, the, the Jewish population that was uh, unhappy with what it perceived as its treatment by Christians, and there was rioting. And then you had uh, the fact that there was a, a group of the Novationists. Uh, these were actually descendants of those members of the Christian community who refused to acknowledge uh, those who had handed over the sacred scriptures, uh, those who had betrayed, in their view, the faith during the persecutions. Now consider that this was uh, something that had ended with the persecutions a century before. So from Cyril's standpoint, it made no sense for them to continue in this position, uh, wrong as it was, uh, and he moved forward and seized their churches that they had been allowed to possess uh, because he said it, it, the time has come for the church to be unified again and he needed to deal with this. You know, he was really reflecting uh, the fact that the church had struggled with this group for a long time and he recognized that he needed to have an end to this. This is the same group that uh, was told by Constantine the Great that for heaven's sakes, he said, the way you act, you might as well build your own ladder and climb your own way to heaven. Is that they had separated <laughs> mm -hmm. themselves so fully from the church. He exiled or, or worked to have exiled uh, many of the, the Jewish ringleaders uh, who had caused violence. For this, he has been accused over the centuries of being an anti-Semite. And then the prefect or sort of governor of what was then called the Diocese of Egypt, that was the administrative unit, uh, Orestes, who really was quite resentful of Cyril's authority in the city and uh, made no bones about the fact that he would do everything in his power to resist and to break Cyril's influence in the culture of the times. So you had the classic clash between a figure of politics and a leader of the church. We've seen this, of course, before with John Chrysostom and Ambrose. And it uh, culminated with violence, unfortunately. And, and once again, uh, Cyril's words were fiery, but at no time did he ever advocate the use of violence against people. And unfortunately, there were those, in particular, wild monks from the desert who would come into the city, who thought they were doing what Cyril wanted them to do, which, of course, he did not. And they actually physically attacked uh, Orestes. And the result was even more tension. So this is a, a, a very important learning time for Cyril, especially because as, as he developed a better sense for how to deal with these ongoing crises, uh, it prepared him, I think, for the great conflict of his time as bishop and, and as a father and doctor of the church. And that, of course, was confronting the heresy of Nestorianism. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. 
And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Would you say his biggest milestone in his life probably was that Council of Ephesus in the year 431? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, when we talk about Nestorianism, what we're really seeing is a continuation of the confusion uh, that existed in uh, some parts of the church uh, in the effort to understand Christ. And it really comes down to uh, the singular event of the incarnation and trying to grasp fully the reality of it. Now, as the catechism teaches, the incarnation does not suggest that Christ is part God and part man. Uh, nor does it uh, suggest that there's some sort of a confused or blending of the divine and the human. Rather, uh, that the church teaches and understands fully that, that Christ became truly man while remaining truly God, so that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. But that had to be defended, that had to be clarified. And so, as a result, we've seen in those first centuries of the church various heresies. Uh, the, the most difficult of the fourth century, uh, of course, was Arianism uh, that questioned uh, whether Christ was eternal. The Nestorian heresy, named after Nestorius, who was the brief-serving bishop or patriarch of Constantinople, uh, proclaimed Christ as a human person joined to the divine person of God's Son. And for Cyril, for those of the East, this was simply unacceptable. This was uh, a, a terrible distortion of who Christ really was, and they recognized they needed to fight it. 
So St. Cyril, like St. Athanasius in the century before, organized resistance to this. And the result ultimately was the Third Ecumenical Council held at Ephesus in 431. Now, why is this important? Well, it, it's notable because Ephesus was one of the great centers for the love of the Blessed Mother. And in a way, the spark for this uh, was the fact that Nestorius argued that you should not use the term theotokos, or God-bearer, to refer to the Blessed Mother. Rather, uh, he, he grudgingly said, uh, you could call her Christotokos, or Mother of Christ. And this was a deeply offensive title uh, to Cyril and, and to so many others, uh, because it really was a, a, a distortion, uh, not just of Mary's role, but also of Christ. You know, they, we always have this maxim that if you want to understand where a heresy stands, use the Blessed Mother as a lens. So if you refuse to refer to her as Theotokos uh, and only will allow her Christotokos, well, you're diminishing Christ in doing that. And so the Council of Ephesus affirmed very powerfully uh, the, the authentic teachings of the Church of Mary as Mother of God and rejected the idea of Mary solely as Christotokos, or Mother of Christ. Should we bear in mind, Matthew, also the adage that, especially those teachings about the Blessed Mother, almost always point either to a truth about Jesus or about ourselves. It isn't just about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, and that's uh, one of the things that is so important about the Council of Ephesus that here we have a council proclaiming that Mary truly became the mother of God by the human conception of the Son of God in her womb. You know, the council proclaims that the, the mother of God, not that the nature of the word or his divinity received the beginning of its existence from the Holy Virgin, but since a holy body animated the council declared by a rational soul which the word of God united to himself and they use that important phrase of the hypostasis, was born from her. The word is said to be born according to the flesh. So right there, in that one little line, we have a tremendous expression of our understanding of Christ. And through the lens of the Blessed Mother, we really do appreciate Christ more fully. But we also appreciate, in a way, our relationship uh, with Christ because we understand him better and and we're able to love him more because we understand him more. So yes, I think you're absolutely right that, that, um, that we look at this from a relational standpoint and, and that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. Also, Matthew, don't you think that the witness of the doctors that we've spoken about over the last several episodes also bring forward for us the importance of standing for truth, even to the point where it may cost our lives? Yes. That, that these teachings are so important that it's not to 
for lack of a better way of saying it, just caving in to maintain peace. You're absolutely right. And in Cyril's case, he saw with uh, Athanasius the, the fact that uh, he was willing to endure exile and imprisonment uh, for what he believed. In the case of Cyril, it's not to the same degree as Athanasius, but he faced persecution because of his position. The emperor, Theodosius, who was initially well disposed toward Nestorius, in part because Nestorius uh, was the head of the church in Constantinople, the capital basically at that point of the world, certainly of, of the entire Roman world, attempted to interfere in the life of the church. And he did that, of course, by deciding that everyone involved with this whole controversy uh, should be deposed. Cyril was deposed and imprisoned for three months. Mm. Why? Because the, the emperor thought that he would be able to impose a solution to these problems by just getting everyone out of the way. And it's a lesson for us today that the state will interfere in the life of the church. And we have to be willing to suffer. But the odds are that most of us will never face prison or, or torture because of it. But we also have to recognize that we have sisters and brothers all over the world who right now are enduring prison and torture and suffering because they are clinging devotedly to the faith. So Cyril in, in 431 was deposed. He was imprisoned for several months through the assistance of the Pope who sent a, a legate or an ambassador to Constantinople. He was released and returned to Alexandria and hailed as uh, sort of the second coming of Athanasius. Mm. He was at that point a really beloved figure. And so much of the violence and controversy of his uh, first years, all of those were forgotten. And it is notable that in the succeeding years, in uh, the uh, 13 years or so that followed, um, he worked so closely to try to restore unity to the church in Alexandria, which also is, is a common thread among so many of the early doctors of the church who were involved in the great Christological and, and theological controversies and combating of heresies, but then worked to bring the heretics, those in error, back into the unity of the church. That is exactly what Cyril did. Now, it, it put him at times at, at odds with some of his allies who argued that uh, he had gone too far in trying to bring in the Nestorians and others to the unity of the church. But he really saw it as essential for the good of the church and also for their souls. Quite a valid witness for today's new evangelization, is he not? Uh, he is, yeah. We also can honor him for a lot of his other writings. We know, for example, that uh, he was widely read in his own time. He had commentaries on the New and the Old Testament. Uh, in particular, uh, he did commentaries on the Pentateuch, on Isaiah, the Psalms, uh, as well as the Gospels of, of John and Luke. And then, of course, uh, were his writings in defense of the Church's true understanding of the Trinity. And there is as well the great tradition of him in the Alexandrian church. And 
he stands really with Athanasius as two of the great figures of the church in Alexandria. And while it is one of the great tragedies of history that the, the church in Alexandria was sort of swamped beneath the, the wave of the Arab Islamic invasions, the, the church in Alexandria was one of the greatest centers for Christian learning in the entire history of the church. And Cyril has a rightful place there and needs to be honored for that. Final thoughts, Dr. Bunsen, on St. Cyril of Alexandria. Yeah, uh, the best a final thought I can give is actually to defer to uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who in 2007, as part of his general audiences, said of him that St. Cyril of Alexandria was an unflagging, staunch witness of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, emphasizing above all his unity as he repeats in 433 in his first letter to, to a bishop that only one is the Son, only one the Lord Jesus Christ, both before the Incarnation and after the Incarnation. Indeed, the Logos, born of God the Father, was not one Son and the one born of the Blessed Virgin Mother, but we believe that the very one who was born before the ages was also born according to the flesh and of a woman. And Benedict adds that over and above its doctrinal meaning, this assertion shows that faith in Jesus, the Logos, born of the Father, is firmly rooted in history because, as St. Cyril affirms, this same Jesus came in time with his birth from Mary, the Theotokos, and in accordance with his promise will always be with us. And this is important. God, Benedict says, is eternal. He is born of a woman. And he stays with us every day. In this trust we live. In this trust we find the way for our life. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. A privilege to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our next episode. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. 